Hallelujah. Mm. There are a number of songs that, as we get to the chorus, and the song builds and builds until you get to that spot where it talks about His return and the victory that is ours. I want you to understand that victory is already ours. We stand victorious today in Him, because of Him, and for Him. This morning we are in John chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at Jesus, the Son of God. I'm reminded of, in fact, every time I, I see the, uh, the uh, State of the Union address, there's a gentleman that steps out and makes the declaration Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And everybody stands and claps and, or sits and doesn't, whatever the case might be. And I'm reminded each time I see that of who we find here in John chapter 1, verse 15 and following. John the Immerser. You may know him better as John the Baptist. I call him John the Immerser because that's the literal translation of the word baptizo, to immerse. And that's his name, John the Immerser. We have the privilege of observing him doing what the sergeant of arms does. And that is to declare the arrival, or in this case, the soon arrival of the Messiah. Now, there's a great deal of confusion as to what is actually going on here. There are a number of questions that are going to be raised, and rightfully so. It would be just like uh, CNN or Fox News showing up and asking him, Who are you? And then they make some suggestions, as many news outlets love to do. Let's put words in your mouth for you, and then we'll report it as such. That is who we have here, John the Immerser. He is declaring the soon arrival of the Son of God. Now I want you to understand, even as we were talking about it last week in the first part of this chapter, that we have the occasion, we have the opportunity here to observe that which has been forecasted for, well, ever since Genesis chapter 3, that God would provide redemption that God would provide a means of reconciling humanity to himself. The people of Israel at this time, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are expecting, they're looking for God's deliverer. It doesn't take us very long to go back to the book of Judges and observe how God has delivered his people a number of times in miraculous ways and always by providing someone to lead the charge. And for most of Israel at this point in their history, that's what they're expecting. When they're looking for this, this Messiah, they're looking for this individual who is going to deliver them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. You go back into the Gospels and you, if you study the life of Christ, you will discover that that is exactly what they were expecting. Someone to put the food on the table. Someone to put peace in the streets. God intervening. 
What they weren't expecting is what Jesus provided. And that, my friend, is exactly what the message is that you and I carry today. A message that the people do not expect and do not want. In today's culture, just as in that first century, we have people today who want peace in the streets. They want food on the table. They want the car in the garage. They want to be able to have these things provided for them. It's interesting. Human nature does not change. And the message that we bring today is one that is unwelcome in many quarters. Because it's not what they're expecting. It's not what they want. So today, as we look at this passage, let's take a look first at uh, verse 15 through 17. The word says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he... This was he of whom... I lost my place. Where was I? Verse 15. This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have the introduction, as John shares. The introduction. We have John, the immerser. We have him in verses 15 through 17 describing that divine calling. Sharing with them, this is what God has given me the opportunity to do. 17, that purpose was to prepare the way. There was a necessity, as, as, as the king would come into the streets, there would be that, that crier, that herald that would go before him and declare the king is coming. Are you familiar with the Gaithers? I love that song. The king is coming. Oh my word, I cry just about every time I listen to that. The, the majesty as it as it as it continues to grow, as it continues to, to, to get to that majesty of his return. John, his calling is preparing the way for this Christ. And there is a call to repentance. You go over into chapter 3 and verse number 3, and you observe there, uh, well, let's take a look real quick here. John chapter 3, verse 3. Excuse me. I said John, didn't I? I need to be in Luke. Luke chapter 1. Verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Over into Luke chapter 3 and verse number 3. Uh, Luke shares this, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is the message. This is what John is doing as he's in the process of preparing the way, as he's giving this call to repentance. And you understand that the people of Israel, all the way down through history, have had that message being preached to them. And how is it that individuals got saved in the Old Testament? That's a good question. 
How is it that people in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, Paul in Galatians tells us there that Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. So how did people in the Old Testament get saved? Today we get saved by looking to the cross, we're looking to the past at what has been done by, the, by Jesus Christ on the cross for you and I, and the resurrection from the dead the third day, three days later. Paying the price for my sin and for yours. So we're looking back, and we are trusting by faith at what has been accomplished on our behalf, what's been put on my account. So how did those in the Old Testament get saved? The answer to that question is the same way, by faith. They looked forward to the cross. They were looking forward to God's redemption. That's why Paul could share those words, that Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. So here is, here's John going about this ministry. He's preaching the gospel. He's sharing with them what it is that God has done, what God is about to do. He's preparing the way for this Christ, for the Son of God to come. And he's preaching a gospel message. And the beauty of it is people are responding. People are being baptized. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He was introducing the Christ. Here in this particular passage, uh, in John chapter 15, excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I, I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's giving a divine message. In that preparation process, he's giving to them a divine message. You know, as preachers, we would love to believe that we're giving a divine message. And if it's Christ-focused, hopefully it is, and spirit-empowered. As John is preaching, he's sharing that divine message. And he's talking about the eternality of who Christ is. Last week we were in the first part of this chapter, and we saw the eternality of Christ. We saw this morning in the passage that Paul read for us the fact that, that Jesus was involved in the creation and that by him all things consist, all things are being held together by him. He has been in, intimately involved in creation from the very beginning. He is God. As you go back into that verse, uh, verse number two of this chapter, he was in the beginning with God. Remember what I shared last week about that verb, was. It's an imperfect verb, an imperfect active verb. Which means that, that there's, there's no end into eternity past. That's who he was and is. And that is the message that John is preaching. In verses 16 and 17, we see here the fullness, that he was the fullness of grace and truth. Now I want you to camp there for just a minute or two. The fullness of grace and truth. What is the truth? As far as these people were concerned, the truth was the law. The law, that which Moses had given to the people, which God had given to Moses and Moses shared with the people. Here it is, the law. That law had been perverted down through the generations. The Pharisees had, had composed a book that was the interpretation of the law and then additional things that were added to it. And it was an incredibly burdensome book. It was impossible it was impossible for the people to live up to the standards that the Pharisees had put into this book. No one could do it. And the fact is, no one could keep the Ten Commandments. 
let alone what the Pharisees had put together. And this is one of the problems, one of the issues that has plagued humanity down through the years, and that's the idea of legalism. Humanity loves legalism. We love to be able to measure things, don't we? I've got a Stanley tape measure at home, and I use it very religiously. I mean, you want, if you want something to fit in a slot, you're going to cut it to the correct length by measuring. And you know the rule of thumb. Measure twice, cut once. Well, the law was the standard that people were using. This is the measuring stick they were using for their spirituality and as far as their salvation was concerned. And the fact is, the law was never intended to provide a means of salvation. Never. Again, I referenced the book of Galatians. You need to spend some time there and see what Paul has to share. Understand that the law was given to reveal sin. It was not given to redeem man from sin. Only Jesus could do that. In the Sermon on the Mount... You've got three chapters there where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, and not just the Pharisees, but all who had gathered to listen to him speak. But his comments were mainly focused on the Pharisees and upon the burden that they had imposed upon the people of Israel. I mean, he had some very blunt and bold things to tell them. He told them, you smell like the grave. You smell like the tomb. This guy was not politically correct. He told him the way it was and the way it is. In those three chapters, he made it clear that the law has no redemptive value. Again, it reveals sin. It tells us who we are. It's only in the blood of Christ and the finished work of the cross that there is redemption. And this is the message that, that John is bringing to them here in verses 16 and 17. In his, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. The last part of verse 17, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus, again, there in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, makes mention of the fact that he has not come to, to abolish the law. He'd come to fulfill it, to bring it to a completion. And the beautiful thing about what you see here in verse 17, excuse me, in verse 17 is this. Grace and truth go hand in hand. Grace and truth. I jotted down in my notes this, this phrase or this idea. Grace without truth is deceitful. Grace without truth is deceitful. Truth without grace is condemning. How many times have you heard people say, oh, I just speak the truth in love? They, they, they have to spew something out, and, and then they say, well, I'm just speaking the truth in love, and they, they exit the scene. That was not an exercise of grace and truth, nor was it an exercise of love. Yes, there is truth. Yes, there are absolutes. Contrary to what our schools are teaching today, there are absolutes. Which, by the way, let me just put this in here as a, as a little parenthetical statement. If, if our children and our grandchildren are being taught that there are no absolutes, they are not being prepared for adulthood. Just try to explain how you're supposed to balance a checkbook. 
Are there absolutes or aren't there? Absolutely, to use the word. Truth, biblical truth is absolute. It's going to be truth all of the time. It does not change. And that is what's so frustrating for many people today. You've got the same message. You just don't say anything different than what you said before. That's right. Because that's what God has said here. It hasn't changed. We take a stand on truth. And I love standing on truth because it is solid bedrock. It doesn't change. Everything else changes. Science changes. You see that in the news quite often. Well, something new has been discovered. You know, they can't decide whether Pluto's a planet or not. God knows. And God put it there. Truth is absolute. And it's absolutely true all of the time. One philosophy that, that has guided my life and, and I, I instilled it in my kids and I will do it with my grandchildren as well. Always speak the truth because then you never have to worry about remembering what lie you told. Lies change. Truth never does. God's truth. Solid bedrock. And I love to stand on the bedrock and not on shifting sand. So as we talk about this grace and truth, truth without grace, what did I say it was? Is condemning. And grace without truth, hmm, that is deceitful. Well, let me talk about that for just a second. Grace. Being a gracious individual. Gracious people oftentimes will go about uh, not stating the obvious. Uh, they don't want to offend. They, they basically just want you to feel good about being in their presence or being in their home or whatever the case may be. Graciousness. And there's nothing wrong with graciousness as long as there's truth coupled with it. You see, if you're just simply gracious, then we never do share the truth. And the truth, according to the Bible, is that which is going to set you free. Right? So, as John is introducing Christ, as he's preparing the way, he's, he's telling us here in verse number 17, very simply, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Because of his ministry, because of who he is, we get the balance of grace and truth. I'm reminded of the, uh, the adulterous woman and the Pharisees who have brought her to Jesus to, uh, to give judgment. And you remember Jesus' response was very simply, he who is without sin cast the first stone. What we find in that narrative is very simply this. We find the exercise of grace and of truth. For what did Jesus tell her? Essentially, go home and sin no more. We have both. You and I need to be, we need to be students of being both gracious and truthful. Now, I'm not saying we're being deceitful, but when we leave out the truth, how many people are going to hell because they don't hear it? Because we don't share it. We're too busy being gracious and kind 
that we fail to share with them the most important message they will ever hear. Which, by the way, next Sunday is Easter. Brother Paul and Brother Ralph have made it quite clear. Invite your friends. Invite your neighbors, your family. Bring them. Uh, I told them in Sunday school, tell them you'll buy them coffee. Bring them at 10.15 and enjoy some coffee and donuts. A little time of fellowship, a little time of rubbing elbows, a little bit of time of figuring out that we are regular people just like they are. But we're redeemed because of the cross. So this is the, 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 the introduction of what's happening here with, with John the Immerser. In verse number 18, he says, There no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John is in the business, and Jesus, of course, <clears throat> in his person and in his ministry, is revealing who God is. He's sharing the good news, and not only sharing it, but modeling it. The word declared here is a word that means to explain, to unfold, to lead the way. In fact, the word, the original word is the, the one we get our English word exegete from, or exegesis. That's what I'm doing with you this morning, explaining the text, sharing with you what it is that God has shared with us. In verses 14 and 18, we found these words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's that phrase again. The idea of the only begotten, and I know you've heard this before, is the idea of, of the, the only, the, the unique, the one of a kind. There is no other like it. This virgin birth a doctrine which I might add is very much under attack by the devil and all of his minions. Because if they acknowledge his virgin birth, then they have to acknowledge who he is. The Son of God. You see, that phrase is used in this, in this, uh, this gospel here numerous times. It's an emphasis of John as he shares this good news of Christ. The Son of God. Was it nine times and 19 times he's referred to as the Son? You know, last week I think I shared with you that passage in which Jesus declared that he is the I Am. And those who were present picked up stones to stone him because they recognized that he was making the claim that he is God. Well, let me, let me point you to a couple of other incidents in which we have the, the, the enemy's acknowledgement. That's always a good thing. The enemy's acknowledgement of who this individual is. Over in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, and also in Luke chapter 4, we have accounts of where Jesus is involved with some demons, some demon-possession individuals. And in each of those cases... In both of those cases, who do those, who do those demons acknowledge him to be? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Goodness gracious, folks. If the enemy acknowledges that, then why can't the, the unsaved acknowledge that? 
Well, the, the reason that is because the devil and the demons, they already know who he is. They are already in, in the know as far as the, the intricacies and the, the inner workings of, of the deity of, of Christ. They know. And one more thing I would add. They already know their fate. They know what's going to happen in the end. And they are working so diligently and so, so oh goodness, energetically, so passionately to blind the unsaved because they want to take as many of them with them as they can. The passion of somebody who is someone or some entity that is, that is working for a lost cause. Desperately working. And they know they are going to lose. <laughs> That's why, as I mentioned this morning, as we were singing that song, and there are a number of other songs that are just like that. We've already won. Folks, we've already won. When he rose from the grave, we won. I've read the end of the book. We win. Oh, my word. That's why, you know, some of those old hymns that we, we sing are, are, are just so... And the new ones, too. Up from the grave he arose. Whoa! Oh. Yeah, we, we've already won. And the devil knows it. That's why he's working so hard on the unsaved. And that's why he's working so hard on us to make us ineffective. Making us cowardly. Making us hypocritical. So the unsaved will not trust us. So here's John. Preparing the way. And then we find the interrogation in verse number 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may, be, may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Hmm. Interesting what he has to say. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in uh, Beth, uh, Bethabara, is the translation that I have here, uh, beyond the Jordan where John was baptized. Hmm. The interrogation, who are you? You know, that's a legitimate question. A very legitimate question. Are you the Messiah? No. I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? 
probably the one referred to in Deuteronomy 18, which, by the way, is a reference to Christ. No, I'm not. According to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, I'm the voice in the wilderness. I am that voice that is crying out and declaring the Christ, the Messiah. Isn't it interesting how in the stillness sounds stand out? Last week I started to stay in a home over there on Bluegrass. And it's a, it's, it's a home I'm from unfamiliar with. And uh, you know at night, sound is accentuated. You hear things. And I swear I, I heard somebody walking across the floor at least three or four times. Floors creaking at night. The building, you know, as it, as it cools down from the solar heating of the day, it, it, it cools down and things creak and groan and so on and so forth. And uh, the furnace kicks on and off and other things coming on and off and so on. And in the stillness, I can hear something. And that's what Isaiah 40 is talking about there. In the stillness, in that wilderness, there's a sound. And it doesn't matter who you are. When, when you are in that kind of a stillness and you hear the sound, your ears peer, perk up. You want to hear. Even those of us who are hard of hearing, we want to hear. What is that? And that's the picture. That's the idea of what's going on here with John the Immerser as he's proclaiming this truth, as he's preaching, being that voice in the wilderness. And people are perking up their ears and they're listening. They're hearing what he has to say. And the fact of the matter is that even today, there is a, there's a characteristic of, of our culture today. They're willing to listen to any kind of spirituality that might be out there because it might have bearing on where they're at. We were talking about this in Sunday school a little bit. Except for the things of God. I want to hear about mysticism. I want to hear about astrology. I want to hear about all these other things. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, no, I don't want to hear about that. Why is that? If they genuinely have a hunger for spiritual things, why don't they want to hear about the one thing that is the absolute truth that can make a difference for eternity? It comes back to what we were talking about a little bit ago. The devil, the demons... They're working hard, and they're blinding them. That does not abdicate our responsibility, friends. We still have a responsibility to be the light in the darkness. We still have a responsibility to speak the truth in love, graciously. We still have a responsibility to model the truth and make a difference. So the interrogation unfolds here. He, does, he denies that he is any of these other things except for that voice in the wilderness. The question then is raised in verse 25, why are you baptizing? Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Jesus answered, excuse me, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. 
You see, there's this understanding, there's this, this acknowledgement of the fact, yes, I am baptizing, which was a common practice back in these days. You need to understand that. Baptism was not new because of Christ. It's not new because we do it as a church. Baptism was there. It was, it was something that was done as, a, as a, an acknowledgement of repentance. Interesting. We do so as an acknowledgement of our relationship with Christ. It's a picture. It's a public declaration of our faith in Christ. So they did it as a, as a, as a symbol of their repentance. Of, re, of repentance from what? From sin. And one of the things that, uh, that, that should be developed further here is the fact that in that baptism, there was no redemption. There is no redemption. In fact, he acknowledges here, hey, I'm just using water. That's all it is. It's like communion. When we come to the communion table, and next Sunday we'll be dealing with uh, the Lord's table, we need to acknowledge, we need to understand that there is no redemptive value in the cracker or the juice. That's all they are. It's a cracker and a juice. We do so because Jesus told us to as a, as a church, as the body of Christ, as a memorial of what has been accomplished on the cross of Calvary. The waters of baptism as a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection and that public declaration. The water, it doesn't save anybody. The juice, the cracker, they don't save anybody. There's no redemption there. We do each of those things because we are redeemed, because we are a child of God. Because as, as we do so, we're acknowledging who he is. So here we have John. Why are you baptizing? You're not the Messiah. You're not the prophet. You're not Elijah. Why are you? I love how John uses this as an opportunity to teach an opportunity to proclaim the truth to those that were not only asking the question, but to those who were there listening as the questions were asked. And the beauty of this is, if we get back to verse 28, uh, these things were done in, excuse me, back up in verse, uh, verse 27. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. John speaking of Jesus. We understand as we, as we dissect, as we, as we exegete the text, as we try to understand what is going on as John ministers, as he answers the questions, and what it is that John was doing in the, the proclamation ministry of preparing the way. What was the general message? What was it he was trying to communicate? What was it he was preaching? We don't have a record of his, of his sermons. You know, I wish I did. I mean, people were getting saved. People were getting baptized. I, man, I wish I had those sermons. But you know, I, I, I have to acknowledge this too. I don't need his sermons. I've got the word of God. And my Bible says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's capable of piercing. It's capable of bringing understanding. And I also understand that the ministry, the Holy Spirit, is happening. The Spirit of God is still in the business of opening people's understanding, opening their minds and opening their hearts and helping them to see. 
And I also understand that I am not the one who is going to redeem their soul. That's not me. But I am the one who is the spokesman or one of those spokesmen who proclaim that truth. The truth, the word of God. And relying on the power of the spirit of God to do his job. So what is it he's preaching? He's preparing the way for the Messiah, the one who is going to come, who's going to redeem his people, the one who's going to turn this world on its ear. He's going to take Judaism and he's going to, he's going to offend them. He's going to take the Gentiles and he's going to stir them up. He's, his disciples, his apostles are going to go out and they are going to preach and churches are going to be established and the Spirit of God is going to be at work, and you and I who are sitting here today are the product of the work they started. What will be the fruit of your ministry? What will be the fruit of your ministry going forward? What will be the fruit of First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant in moving forward? Well, there's one question that I have to ask. Actually, there's a couple of questions I need to ask. Number one, are you saved? Are you part of God's family? You know, if we were back in John's day and we were listening to John the, John the Baptist, John the Immerser preaching, would we be receptive? Have we been receptive to the message that would have been preached? Would we have been looking forward to that Messiah and trusting by faith? Today, we look back. You know, there are a lot of people today who play church. They have a, a, a facade of spirituality. And not knowing you other than the couple, three weeks that I've been here now to, to interact with you. I don't know that every single one of you sitting here this morning are, are a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't know. God does. But I have to ask the question, have you been playing church? Have you been going through the motions hoping that someday along the way it's going to be enough? Or maybe you've grown up in a, in a Christian family in, a, in the church and you're thinking that because mom and dad are saved, I'm going to heaven. It doesn't work that way. Every individual must come to that place where they acknowledge Jesus Christ and accept him as their personal Lord and Savior. Why? Because of our sin. Because we're all born in it. We're all cursed by it. So are you saved? Today is Palm Sunday. Triumphal. You can imagine, if you use your sanctified imagination, you can see Jesus riding that donkey into town. That colt. The palm leaves being dropped in front of him. Royalty coming into town. These very same people will be crying for his head. In just a few days. Are we victorious in Christ? My second question. As a child of God today, are, are we living a life that is on top of the world or are we under the world? You know, I ask people, how you doing? And they say, well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. So my response to that, by the way, if you ever say that to me, this is what you're going to hear. Well, what are you doing under there? You know, as a child of God, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to heaven. My soul's redeemed. Remember that old uh, gospel song, that southern gospel song? I'm redeemed by love divine. Glory, glory, Christ is mine. All to him I now resign. I have been, I have been redeemed. I'm not a tenor. But the fact is, I'm a child of God and I'm going to glory. If I drop dead today, don't mourn for me. I'm breathing the air of heaven. Are you going to? Now, are you living the day as though you are redeemed? Or are you living the day as an oppressed individual? God has answers for those things. So what's Christ's priority in your life? What is your priority today? Is it Christ? Is it the world? Is it your job? Is it your family? Be careful. Even our family should come second to Christ. Christ needs to be number one. The Son of God. The only begotten. Father, thank you for our time together this morning and thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word to see the truth to hear the truth, to embody the truth. God, we pray that as your people, as your redeemed body, that we would be faithful in proclaiming that truth, not only in the words we say, but in the lives that we lead. And I recognize that there are people here today that struggle with a lot of different things emotionally, materially, spiritually that might be you my friend and if it is I want you to know there is hope there is hope and no you don't yes you do not have to stay under those circumstances for God has redeemed you if that's you my friend I would be more than happy to sit down with the word of God and be encouragement to you because God does not want us to stay there Yes, he'll take us through those dark dark waters, those deep waters, and those dark days. But yet the emphasis there is he'll take us through. So if that's you, my friend, let's turn to the word. Let's turn to the spirit and let God work in us and through us. If you're here today without Christ, or maybe you need to be obedient in the waters of baptism, whatever the case may be, God has the answers, and it's found in Christ, the only begotten Son of God, in whose name we pray this morning with thanksgiving. Amen.